This is a Federal News Network podcast. The results of the 2020 election might have taken weeks to resolve, but now there's fresh evidence the balloting was kosher. That's according to detailed analyses conducted by the MITRE Corporation's National Election Security Lab. Here with how they did it, MITRE's Director of Cyber Integration, Emily Fry. Ms. Fry, good to have you on. Good morning, Tom. Thanks for having me. And let's set the background here. Why did MITRE undertake this particular study of some of the balloting that happened in the contested states in particular? What caused you to take a look at this, I guess, after the courts had already made their decisions? Well, you know, we actually started to look at election-related issues when we started the SWINT program, which was a way of collecting misinformation all through 2020. And we could see in the signs that were coming in from the SWINT program all kinds of indicators that this could be an election that had an unusual level of concern, tension, maybe contention. And so we decided to really try to step in and offer MITRE's data analytics capabilities to the nation in a time of need. All right. And tell us the methodology, because mail-in ballots happened in different ways in different jurisdictions, and it would seem to be a hard thing to reconstruct afterwards. So how did you go about determining the accuracy and efficacy of that mail-in balloting? That is a great question. So, you know, the main thing that we were able to do was simply watch the news and figure out where are these allegations of mistrust, concern, fraud coming from. And really, that was our jumping off point. We watched for the items of concern in the news. And this is the important part. We took those questions and we began to ask ourselves, where is there data and evidence that would actually allow us to address or answer a question that we have seen in the media? And there were many such questions where there was simply no data and no evidence. So we did not address those questions because we were only going to do it if we had data. So the evaluations that are summarized in the study that was published are the places where we found good quality data that we could really use and assess the issue. There are six such examples. And where were those? So this is interesting. It, It is a range across the country. We've got one in Butler County, Pennsylvania. We've got one case study in Antrim County, Michigan, and an awful lot of case studies around Georgia. In the end, that was a coincidence, but it happened to be very useful because there was a lot of attention on Georgia. Sure. And what were the data sets that you actually ran through? And then we'll talk about some of the algorithms or, you know, what the research methodology was. But what were the data sets themselves? We had access to a number of data sets that were being published by the election officials in the different jurisdictions, by the state election directors and the secretaries of state. So in addition to that, we were accessing publicly available data sets from different news organizations. Each analysis is a little bit different. We had easiest access to the data in Georgia. And I would say, you know, hats off to them for remarkable transparency. They did a great job. So these were the data sets of the counts of the paper ballots, of the mail-in ballots? So we actually looked beyond mail-in ballots to other sets of allegations. And let me give an example, if I may. One of the issues that we looked at was whether or not there was an anomaly in returning mail-in ballots in Butler County, Pennsylvania. So early on in the process of pre-November 3rd voting, 
we could see that there was a county that was not returning mail-in ballots based upon simply the numbers that were collected of the returned ballots. And that data is collected by the state of Pennsylvania, so we were able to take a look at that. So that raised the question for us and presented the question for us, why would there be this one county where there are no ballots being returned? This doesn't make any sense. Is this, is this a suspicious item? And when we looked into it, we realized that as a matter of fact, the Postal Service had misplaced a large number of ballots and they simply had not been delivered to the residents of Butler County. So you can see we're using a, a number of different sets of data. We're using data from the Secretary of State's office. We're using data from the Postal Service. We're using data from the news. So the analysis is actually tailored to where we can find the data. What we were able to find in that case was at one point in the process, the Postal Service caught up with its deliveries. And at that point in time, the returns of mailed ballots then began to catch up with the norm. And so by the time we reached Election Day, there was no longer an anomaly. We're speaking with Emily Fry. She's Director of Cyber Integration at the MITRE Corporation. And with respect to what some alleged were unreal results from those mail-in ballots, they were all for Joe Biden or something, that type of thing. Were you able to verify or discount that particular phenomenon, that it was out of band for what might be expected vis-a-vis ballots cast the standard way? That's a great question. So there are a couple of different instances in the study where we're looking at the difference between what happens when you have mail-in ballots and what happens when you really just have people voting on election day. So we looked at the difference between recorded votes and types of party line affiliations that showed up in 2016 as opposed to 2020. And we really saw, um, and, and this has been reported by others, so I feel especially confident in saying this, that mail in voting, it does increase the turnout. And we want that as a nation, we want our voters to be engaged. But while increasing the turnout, it does not have an effect on the party that wins or loses. That is not a correlation that we really see. Interesting. So adding all of this up, do you see lessons learned for local jurisdictions that operate elections? And is there any lesson to be learned by the federal government, which in some cases does set policy? It's not supposed to in other instances and so on. So what can we all take away from this for the next time around? Sure. So let's parse that apart for just a minute. I'm going to go back to the state of Georgia. We were able in the state of Georgia to find quality and regularity of data that was really not available in the majority of states. So our recommendation to states is get the data collection methodologies in place so that there is maximum transparency in the run-up to elections, during elections, after elections, and make this data available to the independent researchers who are trying to investigate integrity of the elections. And let me give you an example. We were able to see in the state of Georgia that they were collecting data down to the individual level, not at the state level, not just at the county level, but down to the individual as to whether they had returned a ballot and whether that ballot was accepted or rejected. And the value of that data in determining the integrity of an election cannot be overstated. And did they do that with some kind of a barcode system or how how were they able to do that? Yes. So they actually do have a barcode system and a number of other very human intensive methodologies that they're using to track every ballot. 
So the point that I am taking away from this, and I really hope that this is shared as broadly as possible, there's a role here for the states to be as thorough in data collection as they can be. And there's a role for the federal government in really enabling and empowering states to have the resources that they need on a sustained basis to conduct both the cybersecurity and technical assessments that they need to collect, but also to really put in place those processes that enable them to communicate and support integrity and the perceptions of integrity with the public. And then there's also the issue of chain of custody of ballots, and that's something you can really never let your guard down on, is it? Including the Postal Service. Yeah, that's really true. Chain of custody is very important. You know, one of the things that different states have been doing is the barcode system so that it's in fact possible to track where these things enter the system, where they move through the system, where they end up in the system. All right, a little technology and a little human integrity, and maybe we'll make it through, I guess. Emily Fry is Director of Cyber Integration at the MITRE Corporation. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you so much, Tom. It's been a pleasure. We'll post this interview along with a link to that study at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. We now bring you a special presentation from our friends at WEPA. Shane, thanks for joining us. Can you tell us about WEPA and your new podcast? Mike, great to see you again. The podcast series, Lessons in Leadership, what we're trying to do is, is take a deeper dive, a different angle into the conversation around leadership with great leaders at all levels of government. Uh, since the 1900s, leadership has been studied in a serious and academic way. Uh, great man theory, the leader-follower theory, the inspirational leader, transformational leader. All of these are backward-looking um, development of styles, looking at an individual, figuring out how they did leadership, and then translating it into a form that we can use today to learn, to perhaps emulate, copy. But great leaders, they have more than one style. I think I truly think that a great leader can adapt and transform into the role that's needed at that time. So what we're trying to do is, is talk to great leaders and go a level deeper. Tell us about your, a story in your past. Tell us an inspiration that really affected your ability to lead others. And this certainly applies in the uh, federal space. The federal government, it's over 2 million employees, Great leaders are throughout the federal government, both at the top and the middle ranks. And what we want to do is ask them to pull inside their memory, pull inside their personal history, find those moments in time when they were changed, they were inspired, they learned something about leadership from another person, perhaps it was uh, from themselves, and they brought that to the workplace, and they inspired other and became great leaders. So that's what we're trying to do with the podcast. Okay, so I, I get that you wanted to start with leadership, but what makes leadership such an important topic right now for federal workers? Great question. Leadership today is tested like never before. Um, today's, if I had to put a leadership style, if I had to put names to it, we hear about um, empathetic, we hear transparent, we hear uh, inspirational. So 
Today, we have COVID, we have a down economy, we have people, we have social uh, injustice that we're dealing with. There are many new factors. And it's drawing, like never before, on a leader's ability to pull from within themselves and adapt to the current change. So leadership today is almost brand new again. We're taking all kinds of different styles, attributes, learnings that leaders have. They're looking at the current situation that we're in and understanding how do I move groups of people? How do I move my employees? How do I inspire? How do I get them to the next best place? So I think leadership today, this conversation uh, is extremely relevant, perhaps more relevant than it's been in several decades. You know, we talk about an employee's personal route to growth, but what role does the management side have in this? I think in the federal government, it's, it's a little bit different than it is in the private sector. Uh, my father was a civilian federal employee uh, he joined the federal government in the 1960s. Uh, John Kennedy, he was inspired by ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. He had opportunities to go in the private sector. That notion of service inspired him. It inspired an entire generation. I would like to think that call to service, which is unique in, in the federal space, in the government space, Still exists today. Well, that about says it all. But is anything else you'd want the audience to know about you personally or WEPA as an organization? Uh, I have been uh, around the group affinity insurance world for um, three decades. I've led this is my second uh, major organization that I've led. And I will tell you that we impart this feeling, uh, you mentioned it, Mike, about service, this notion. We serve those who serve. And uh, I will tell you that it's refreshing. It's a blessing to be there. And I have so much respect for civilian federal employees at every level of government. In this podcast, we're hoping to talk to leaders which are similarly inspired and can share their learnings over a lifetime and uh, this will be useful information uh, for anybody in government service. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, Think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.